Longtime residents of East Harlem in New York City are no stranger to having limited access to resources, especially in times of crisis. Historically, East Harlem has higher proportions of Black and Hispanic residents. 50% of the residents are Hispanic and 31% are Black. Angel Palermo, who has lived and worked in East Harlem for the past 20 years, joined me to talk about her time as project director of the East Harlem COAD, or Community Organizations Active in Disaster. Palermo is an Aspen Institute Health Innovators Fellow. She is also an associate professor at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. Emergency preparedness work in East Harlem jump-started after the country witnessed the devastation Hurricane Katrina caused in New Orleans. That was 2006, and for the next several years, two long-standing organizations provided services to the community. That is until Superstorm Sandy. It's 2012 fall, October 31st, I'll never forget it. Superstorm Sandy hits, and it hits East Harlem good. A natural disaster hits, we are now in the middle of it, and now it's like, let's organize around it. And so in 2013, we started the Emerg East Harlem uh, Emergency Preparedness Collaborative. And we spent a whole year really unpacking, you know, what are, the, what are the real problems that get in the way of coordinating and taking care of ourselves? New York had limited resources to respond, and Palermo had a feeling East Harlem might be forgotten in the recovery. A conversation with the New York City Emergency Management Agency confirmed her fears. There was pushback because the New York City Emergency Management Agency at the time was like, no, why don't you focus on Upper Manhattan? Or no, focus on Harlem, let's expand. And we're like, no, we're staying local to East Harlem. We are most vulnerable. The community is not only vulnerable to natural disasters. Because of the poor air quality, East Harlem has some of the highest cases of respiratory conditions, including childhood asthma. In 2014, air quality was made worse when a building in East Harlem exploded due to a gas leak. Eight people were killed. Palermo was working as a member of a community emergency response team as soon as the building collapsed. Right away, she noticed something that concerned her for the health of her neighbors. There's so much dust in the air. Where, where are we going to get the dust mask? Because people need that. And so that kick-started even more motivation around, like, we need another entity in East Harlem that can coordinate and activate. The birth of the East Harlem COAD, or Community Organizations Active in Disaster, came out of the building explosion in East Harlem. Agencies and businesses got involved to help the community recover, and the organization was able to start with a grant from the Department of Health. We built out the infrastructure, we created a leadership structure. I want to say proudly that the leadership team has always been women and women of color, and um, who are either work or live in East Harlem, and so we're just badass, that's all I have to say. Um, and we do all of this work without any compensation and continue to do so. From the Aspen Institute, I'm Amina Akhtar. This is Aspen Insight. Hurricanes, poor air quality, and now a pandemic. The pandemic entered a part of the city with fewer emergency preparedness resources, gentrification, and long-standing structural racism. East Harlem zip code had the highest amount of coronavirus cases in Manhattan. 24% of adults don't have health insurance, 
20% of the population has limited English proficiency, and 31% of residents live below the federal poverty line. I started the interview with Palermo asking about the immediate challenges facing East Harlem with coronavirus. Um, you know, the, the whole, the whole, the secret agenda, which is not a secret in terms of what one me personally pursuing this work, is to address structural racism through the lens of emergency preparedness, right? And particularly public health emergency preparedness. So, so at the end of the day, that was, that is what needs to be addressed because, you know, pre-COVID structural racism was there and it was, and it is the reason why East Harlem has historically been a low resource black and brown community. So that is geospatially vulnerable. And so when you compound vulnerability on top of vulnerability, and then you have a pandemic hit, it is no accident. There's no accident as to why it's good. It's first to get hit and last to reconstruct. East Harlem is officially now the zip code of 10029, the, the, one of the primary zip codes in East Harlem, is now declared as having the highest report of positive COVID cases than any other zip code in Manhattan. Okay, and within a week, it is it is tripled almost the number of cases. So now, now who's in East Harlem, right? Historically, it is 80% black and brown, historically. And it is also one of the top 10 gentrifying neighborhoods of New York City. And so there are pockets, right? So you could really unpack East Harlem. Like I said, know, not, know a lot about a little. There are parts of East Harlem that are, the zip code is hardest hit, but when you drill down, you really wanna look at what parts of the neighborhood are most hardest hit. We have one of the highest concentrations of public housing developments in the zip code of East Harlem than any other neighborhood in Manhattan, okay? So now you have 125,000 people living in East Harlem, right? You think about density per square mile, right? It's a lot of people. If it's 2.4 square miles, right? Divide that by 125,000 people, like that's a lot of people in one square mile. And then you house them in a very high apartment, tall building that is in disrepair on top of that, right? Because it's public housing. And why is that, right? So you can, you can unpack the structural racism around housing. So there's no accident as to why people can't shelter in place safely. Can we also talk about the ways the medical system is trained to be biased when it comes to addressing black and brown people's health? I mean, you know, there, within the context of, of this pandemic, right, you have to recognize the way in which um, the medical care and healthcare system is, uh, is, is, is trained, if you will, right, to care for patients with certain demographics and certain health conditions, right? I work in a medical school. I know how we teach medicine. I'm a faculty member at a medical school and we've been addressing racism and bias in our medical education learning environment because we actually you teach medicine early on through you know pattern recognition checklists rubrics shortcuts right risk profiling and that has led to yes taking care of patients properly and it has led to socializing medical students into ways of thinking and behaving that creates habits judgments attitudes uh, to be biased, to be primed to be biased negatively towards patients, because we also haven't done as a system, you know, un 
to undo that, to check those biases. We haven't built out the structures, policies, and practices to do that in a rigorous way in medical education across the nation. So in our medical school, we're work, we are committed to taking responsibility for that because we are serving East Harlem. We are serving New York City, the most diverse city in the, in the country. And so that, that right now is happening at an institutional level. Um, so it's not just women of color who are, you know, uh, at a reproductive age or experiencing, you know, having a child. It is every black and brown type patient that shows up because racial bias is historically rooted in medicine, right? You have to remember, race is the most organized, is the most profound organizing principle in American society. It has organized housing, education, employment, and even healthcare. So people want to talk about class, yeah, but let's talk about race first and, and really acknowledge it as a historical root, that racism is a historical root of all American way you know all sectors that we move through to live in this country and so yes even in emergency preparedness racism shows up um what i wanted to ask about is what you're doing now i know you mentioned more in-home health protocols having a senior task force calling people to see if they're okay rent and food for undocumented neighbors and uh you really have this whole group of local um, like you said, cafes, just the entire community coming together to serve. Yeah, I, I will say this. There, well, those were all, what you heard on the call were all things that people would like to see happening as part of the response in East Harlem. Um, and the co-ed, you know, the co-ed doesn't have positional power to do that. The co-ed's positional power is being a voice uh, of one, one of many voices in East Harlem. We are not the sole voice and we will never claim that there are many powerful voices in East Harlem like I said the coalitions I referenced earlier and collectively coordinating the message is what makes East Harlem unique and being heard right so what the co-ed is specifically doing is one serving as an information resource hub for East Harlem so that it's easy to access information if you need to find what's happening so we are doing it we are making the effort to understand well what is happening in East Harlem and <clears throat> gathering that data and, and organizing it in a way that's easy to access on our website and our social media platforms. Then we're also leveraging our relationships. So what we have is very strong networks across different sectors in East Harlem and including our elected officials. And we're working on making sure that they're educated and aware and coordinating what we know and what they know in terms of how do we get this message out to our emergency management partners and others so that we can leverage attention visibility and ultimately resources and so we're partnering with our elected officials to have these conversations we are also working with other city agent offices like the public advocates office and saying you know what can you do to advocate for hyper local planning let the neighborhoods that have the resources to do so and the bandwidth to do so do hyperlocal planning and plug into that in, into that momentum and, and dynamic. Don't don't impose that agenda and approach a citywide approach onto neighborhoods that are not equipped to to do anything with it. And so um, we also need to build out a coaching resource for our agencies who need to know how to do continuity of operations planning and response planning and crisis management planning. Right? We need to equip small businesses 
with resources so that they're also prepared. Like they need to know how to do a go bag for their organization, right? So we need to put money in the hands of people so that they can go buy food. There's a huge food insecure food security issue in East Harlem in the sense that they're putting a lot of food in the neighborhood, like through the schools, the New York City public school system, and there's a lot of, you know, sort of food related organizations. The problem is getting the food actually from wherever the food distribution site is into the home of homebound people. Like we gotta find the homebound people, right? And so, and get them in, and get the food to them, not expect them to all come out into the food distribution site. So it's, it's like three or four layers down of like, yeah, we have access to food, but it's not that easy. Like let's unpack access for a second here, right? Um, we need to think about, and, there, and, and this is gaining attention, our federally qualified health centers, our community health centers in East Harlem. We have three robust, trusted sources, community health centers in East Harlem. They need to be leveraged. I think they're being underutilized. They're doing telehealth primary care for their patients. But, right, hopefully with the testing, if that becomes available, they are leveraged as testing sites. And they are set up with what it needs to do that effectively in East Harlem. Because they already know how to connect to the patient population. They're trusted, you know. Um, so I think what, what, we are, what we're positioning ourselves to do in the COAD is to I know it sounds simple, but literally to make a list of things that we need in the response and in the recovery and have these and use that as a talking point for, for leveraging resources, impact changing policy and getting visibility uh, to the neighborhood. Because the first thing they'll say is like, well, what is it that you need? And what is it? What are the hotspot issues in East Harlem? We need to have a list of things to say, talk about. And so we're starting to have those conversations now. And what you heard was the beginning of that. Um, you are a fellow in the inaugural class of the Aspen Health Innovators Fellowship. And I wanted to know if your fellowship experience has changed the way you've approached certain situations, especially during the COVID-19 outbreaks. And are there any specific lessons or moments that have prompted that change? So I'm a proud member of class one, and that is our name, one. Uh, I, I have to say that uh, I don't know how Rima Cohen did it, but she put together um, probably one of the most passionate groups of people that I'm a part of in my life. Like, I think the best way to describe us is that we're passionate. Um, and, uh, and from that passion comes creativity, comes advocacy, comes action, comes innovation, um, and, and, and love and support. And I think that we have, as a cohort, I've learned so much from my one fellows, co-fellows, in the sense that I've, I've been exposed to other sectors of healthcare and health and medicine um, that I never had before. Uh, you know, whether it was uh, sort of the healthcare venture capitalist space to the biotech, you know, entrepreneurial space, to the intersection of being a physician and an entrepreneur. Like, you know, I've been in the space of diversity affairs, community-based public health, medical education. Um, you know, that is my, my cubby hole. And what the, the Health Innovators Program did for me was, was take me out of my cubby hole 
reflect on on those spaces and think about where does the innovate where where can we innovate in those spaces? Where can we innovate in diversity affairs? Where can we innovate in community-based public health? Where can we innovate inside of you know how we teach the new the, the physician work like physicians like what where can we push and interrupt and disrupt all of that? Um, and I think having such a passionate group of individuals from very diverse backgrounds, not only just lived experiences, but ways of thinking, um, helped me think outside of my cubbyhole, if you will. And I'm deep, deeply, deeply grateful for that. And I think what's even more special is that we are still one, like literally. We are still connected as one. We make an effort to connect every year. Uh, and we're very active in our communication. And we still literally communicate with each other. So. Um, and I think now in the face of COVID-19, there are a number of my co-fellows that are literally on the front line, literally, literally taking care of patients and literally at the bench trying to figure out how to, how to fix this. And that is just, I'm in awe. And I'm just honored and moved, touched and inspired to be a part of this group and to know, to say that I know, I know, with, I know their level of integrity behind this, it's real. And so, you know, that gives me hope that we'll get through this. Honestly, you guys give me hope. The last question I want to ask you, this question may seem obvious, but I really want to ask it to get the gravity of the situation. What do we lose if we lose East Harlem? Ooh, what a question. Um, I'm actually emotional thinking about that um, uh, because I am, I have been working in Islam for 20 years, just over 20 years. I am deeply connected to the neighborhood professionally and personally. Um, I think we're going to lose, um, a certain kind of cultural expression, uh, passion, love, uh, truth, and um, a sense of um, commitment and um, devotion to you know, living with pride and living in your own and, and being fully self-expressed in all and everything that matters to you. Um, you know, despite the significant health burden that this neighborhood has had, it has always been a passionately vibrant, colorful neighborhood. And, you know, I self-identify as Puerto Rican and knowing that East Harlem has been a home for many Puerto Ricans in the Puerto Rican migration and, and is known as El Barrio in Spanish Harlem, I, I have a, a, a cultural, ethnic identity connection. And I know who we are as, as a people and as a community. And I can't imagine not, not existing. Like, I can't imagine that. Um, and, not, and East Harlem is not just Puerto Rican, but I know that our our, our presence as a community is deep and longstanding, and I know what it means to be fully self-expressed 
And for that to not exist um, would be incredibly sad. To find more about the East Harlem Co-Ad or Communities Active in Disaster, go to www.eastharlemcoad.org. Thank you to my colleagues who made this episode possible. Emily Rubenstein, Aaron Myers, Nicole Correa, and Christina Sicconi. Subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app and follow at Aspen Institute on Twitter and Instagram to stay up to date with our work. If you like this episode, give us a review. Thanks for listening.